This podcast is a conversation with Willem Tobit, an ex-F1 aerodynamicist who is head of aerodynamics at Benetton, Ferrari and Sauber, and is now working with us on Project Inversion, our project to prove that a Formula car can drive upside down on the ceiling of a tunnel. In this podcast, we talk about how Willem approached designing a car for such an unusual project, how he developed through 38 versions of the car's design, and how we're protecting the driver, me, if it all goes wrong. The podcast also includes a familiar voice, Callum McIntyre, who's been researching, writing and presenting on our Driver 61 and Overdrive channels for the past three years. It's a fascinating discussion and the podcast gets better and better as you get into it. So this is the Driver 61 podcast and here's our discussion with Willem Toet. Willem, thank you very much for joining us. We'll get straight into it. The first thing is we're trying to drive a Formula car upside down in a tunnel. Why would we not do that with a Formula 1 car? What are the problems involved with that? Well, the main, the, okay, Formula 1 cars are heavy. The suspension is very, very rigid. Um, then probably for me, the biggest issue is the the engine, fuel system, cooling system should be okay. It's pressurized. It should be okay for the duration. But the oil and the fuel systems, as you pointed out as well in your Driver 61 video, the, the oil and fuel systems are critical and would require a lot of work. Now, it's possible to do. The aircraft industry have aeroplanes that will fly upside down, but the cars are not designed for it. And they cost so much money, it would be ridiculous to do. And working with a number of Formula One teams that have looked at this in the past, some in the relatively recent past, they all count, they all discount using a standard Formula One powertrain. So if a Formula One work team were to do this, they would not use a standard powertrain. They would convert to something different. And aside from the, the powertrain, the, the aero and the weight, are there any like limitations there? Yes. The the weight means, so a mistake a lot of people use is they'll say, look, at a certain speed, this car would drive upside down on a tunnel. But what they do, the, the, the aerodynamicists will calculate at what speed you will match the mass of the car. Well, that's not even close. Again, as you pointed out, so I, I was quite pleased to see your video because you pointed out some stuff that... It's very easy to miss, but it's also, if you, as soon as you start to think about it in depth, it's also quite both, uh, let's say, it's fairly obvious if you get into it in depth, but it's really important. Well, I was just explaining your work, basically, Willem, so <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Give, don't give him all the credit, isn't that? <laughs> so uh, you would have to go to a force that is least, at least twice the mass of the car in aerodynamic downforce so that you get the equivalent of the car trundling along the ground in terms of the amount of grip that you would get. Yes. At least twice. You get the same as the mechanical grip of the car, the non-aero grip. Exactly. That would be, in my opinion, an absolute minimum. And one reason for that is um, I've been in the game a long time and I've seen flying accidents. So, for example, at Le Mans. And the drivers who walk away will say, um, it starts off very graceful. For me, that's scary as all hell. That, it's, that it starts off really graceful. And also, so I've driven a hill climb car as well with incredible traction. And there are a couple of places in the world where, or in England, where you will do a hill climb. One is in Gersten Down, one is at Loughton Park, where you have a quite abrupt rise followed by a flattening. And um, the cars will go nose up. And at Loughton Park, I've been nose up at red, at higher speed and the car was just continuing and I had to go for the brakes. And knowing what happens long term, if you didn't go for the brakes, uh, I would have been upside down, big accident. So it was um, a bad time. I crashed down on the ground and was, but it was like whoa, scary. Unfortunately, no images. Anyway, um, but also the Le Mans drivers, it all starts very gracefully and slowly with Something like this, you need an extraordinary margin of safety to make sure it's going to be safe, that you have at least the acceleration of gravity equivalent in aerodynamic fault terms that will, if if the car ever does, from a bump or whatever reason, leave the, the, the tunnel momentarily, it will be pushed back into contact really quickly. Because once you go any distance you've lost control of the accident and that's going to be big so but the formula one car being so heavy it has a lot of downforce 
we can get that amount of downforce with different, let's say, aerodynamic regulations. You can get that amount of downforce in a car that weighs a lot less and therefore goes slower. But that speed means you need the 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 whole thing, the whole the whole event takes a lot more distance. Plus the kinetic energy, the speed you've got in the car means if something goes wrong, all that energy will be a big accident. And the more you can slow it down and keep a good safety margin, the the, uh, the slower any event, any bad thing will be, if you know what I mean. The less energy you have to dissipate if you do have a problem. So even a Formula One team would, for sure, not run the legal weight and not run the, cent- the normal powertrain. It might look like a Formula One car, but it would not be. So quick question on that then. So the regs in Formula One are 798 kilograms, right? What do you think a team could get a current car down to? I know they're struggling on weight, right? So They do struggle on weight, but if you change the powertrain, if you change things, I've my feeling is you could potentially get it down to 600 kilos. Sure, okay. So you can maybe take some gears out of the gearbox or well, just... you would probably just completely replace the powertrain. Yeah, sure. And almost certainly go electric. Yeah, yeah, okay. And once you start to try and remove that weight, I suppose you end up ripping the whole thing apart. Like, I, I imagine a lot of the weight they said this year with the weight increase was down to safety. Um, and I know you've got, like, the halo and fire extinguishers and all that sort of stuff, as well as wheel tethers and all those other things that you might not necessarily need. The main safety features, so I'm a little bit of a fanatic about safety, a car I designed in 1984 where we had no knowledge of what would happen in, we, we, we designed the bodywork without even a moving ground in the wind tunnel, two eight-hour shifts with a very small model in the wind tunnel, and nobody in those days would have been able to tell you what would happen in certain circumstances. And this car had a slow puncture approaching the kink to the Molzahn Strait, turned in for the kink, tail went down, outer rear tyre, just the wrong tyre to go down, tail went down, um, inside front came up, and the car very gracefully went skywards, and the driver, the car burst into flames, so the driver was injured, he was burnt, but the car came down on its tail, which quite often happens, and uh, race cars for almost every series have crushable structures, front, side, and and rear, and the car came down on its tail and then side, and the driver was able to get out. But that changed my approach, if you like, to anything I designed after that, after 1984. Um, I was very, very careful to try to understand what would happen if the worst thing happened. So so for a formula car, the most likely types of accidents are um, a nose cone hitting a rear tyre if you were coming along fast and at the last minute you dive out but you've misjudged it, then a nose cone hitting a tyre. And that's the reason why in uh, the recent years, the last 10 years, Formula One cars have been mandated at the tip of the nose and the structural part of the nose being lower, significantly lower than the half height of a complete rear wheel. If you the nose cone hits a rear wheel at the same height, at let's say half height, then that rear the trailing edge of that rear wheel is traveling directly vertically up at vehicle speed, and that will send your vehicle skywards. Any accident that is in the air, you've lost control. You've too many variables, you've lost control. And so Formula One, uh, the rulemakers realized this. The FIA realized this. Did some research, and they've got a nose height that if a rear wheel if a nose now hits the rear wheel of a Formula One car, it is low enough that you will dive underneath the car in front. You it'll always be the faster car from behind uh, crashing into the slower one ahead. And and that will pick the car up over your car and then the halo will be part of your protection. But usually that that already will dissipate a lot of speed and then the accident remains on the ground. So I've used that, if you like, that same philosophy to just make sure that anything we do with this event will be as safe as we can make it. Now, it's it's dangerous. Motorsport's already dangerous. What we're what we're doing here is inherently even more dangerous. And that and if I'm going to have to sign to say it's safe, I want to make sure it's safe. 
We won't, we won't make you sign anything, will it? Don't worry. <laughs> Go on. On the other hand, if we fail, we'll sue you. <laughs> so that kind of Formula One car's not not the right thing to use, which led me to to you really, and and looking through the hill climb cars and the the hill climb um, competitions, you designed a car called the Empire Ray. Um, could you tell us just a little bit more about that that car initially? Why you designed it? When you designed it? And a bit more about like the the rules are, and the freedom, I suppose, that's involved in in hill climb that makes this type of car the kind of the base for what we're doing. Yeah. So you are absolutely correct, and also every Formula One team has looked at this. Also, is aware that an F1 car isn't right. You have to make changes. So a little bit of a long story. I'll try and cut short. I started doing hill climbing in the '90s with a road car. Uh, Peugeot 205 road car, highly modified, couple of hundred horsepower, nice thing, too slow. Um, bought a racing version, nice, did okay. Um, ran off the road a bit, but did okay, really enjoyed it. Hang on, you, you ran off the road or the car, or both? Well, both, uh, but uh, entirely because of the driver. <laughs> Everything I do in life, you, I think it doesn't take long, to anyone who knows me, anything I do in life is with 100% energy and... Um, Perhaps the enthusiasm level is, when it comes to driving, definitely the enthusiasm outweighs the skill. Okay. And anyway, so started going through then to a small open wheeler, a medium open wheeler, a large open wheeler, and the first time I ever drove an unlimited open wheeler. So hill climbing has strict rules and they are carefully managed. And part of that includes that the tracks you race on are quite tight um, the minimum width for a, for a, a hill climb track is an average of 12 feet. Very narrow. Wow. Um, and they are all relatively short, tight and twisty. And the tight and twisty limits how fast you can go. If you took British hill climb cars, unlimited British hill climb cars, and let them run amok on the European hill climbs, then you would you would have to rethink the structure and stiffness and strength of your car because the speeds are so much higher. But the cars allow, there is no minimum weight, no maximum engine capacity or horsepower. The aerodynamic rules are simple. You have to have a certain ground clearance. Um, you are allowed wings and bodywork that's relatively wide. There's still some limits. Um, but with the speeds being low, then I arrived in, uh, so my two-litre hill climb car was a 300 horsepower, a 418, 500 kilo car, nice. And then someone lent me a drive, allowed me to drive their unlimited class car, um, X F1 engine in a 500 kilo car. That was like, whoa. <laughs> First time up the hill. You just can't believe. So off the line... A really powerful car off the line, zero speed acceleration isn't what's special because it's grip limited. And so that it wasn't any different to a two litre or a 1600 car. Yeah. But once you got up to speed, a sort of speed where you could start to actually put your foot down and that's getting close to a little bit under 100 mile an hour, but you start to be able to use all that power, then the, the acceleration just keeps in as you're getting more and more grip with the speed increasing aerodynamics. Then so a little bit of weight transfer, mainly aerodynamics. Then the acceleration just keeps increasing until you reach the power limit, and that was like, well, uh, I need one of these, so I bought one. Well, first I I shared one with the, with a guy for a year, and then I bought one, and then I'm trying to do a Formula One job running an aerodynamics department, and at the same time go hill climbing at weekends, and there's 17 weekends away. Well, 17 weekends away from a Formula One job's pretty tough, and so a really great friend of mine who we'd met through hill climbing, who used to race a trike with his partner, his girlfriend, as the passenger, bravest human being on the world. Not him, her. Yeah. A trike? A trike. I've never seen that. Two wheels at the front or two, two wheels at the, back, at the rear? Like a conventional American-looking trike, but actually they do a lot of work to get the centre of gravity as low as possible, and then the passenger moves the weight from side to side so they don't roll over. I'm, I'm confused. There's a class for trikes, or it's just a one-off? I'm imagining something like a sidecar then, like 
It is a type of sidecar. It's called a sidecar, but it's really built like a truck. Okay, okay. Because <laughs> sidecars are another thing that I love, but that's another story altogether. That's a, that's that's for another day. Virtual Brothers. Anyway, that's that is definitely for. You another made a day. video about them. That was good. They're 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 keen. I went mountain biking with those guys, and they are they are keen mountain bikers. They're really good. I bet. <laughs> but they, they they have to be. Yeah. Anyway, that's their fitness their fitness and more adrenaline as well. Anyway. So, deciding that I couldn't look after the car, my friend, Bill, Bill Chaplin, who builds the Wraiths, uh, he looked after the car, charged me a ridiculously small amount of money to look after it, so I became an arrive-and-drive driver. I would give him a job list, tell him what to do, um, uh, and then uh, next event, the car would turn up. The, the job list was aero changes, right? Not kind of fix the wheel bearing. No, no, no. Everything. He just took the car. The car left my house. He looked after it, took it to his workshop, and he prepared it for every event, changed all my settings so I'd have different springs and bars and gears, all that sort of stuff. He did the lot. Wow. Yeah. And the amount he charged me was ridiculous. Now, most people would say, great, that's, that's wonderful. But for me, another long story which I will not go into, um, I value... I don't value money as such, as such. I you you, you need enough to be to survive well, um, but I've seen the richest people on the planet being complete bees and people with no money at all sharing what little they have. And anyway, so I don't like owing money, and I felt I owed him a big favour. So I decided. He asked me one day, "Look, um, I, I'm starting a new business." I can build cars and I'd like a bit of help with the aerodynamics of a car so that we can have something that is competitive in hill climbing. So I thought, this is my opportunity. So we got four humans together, him, and just did around the, around the table discussion. So I've, what I first did was take an existing car that he'd built in the past, um, put it in CFD and do some runs. And I did about a dozen runs or so to just see, could I improve the error? Showed it to Bill, and he said, was like, well, I'm sure it's aerodynamically efficient, but it's so ugly. <laughs> and the previous person to tell me that was Ross Braun about the, about the Benetton. And at the which time, one? Ross Braun, no, which, which, car? which Benetton which would have been 93 or 94 Benetton. What? They're beautiful cars. Yeah. They were beautiful by the time Ross made me round a few of the sharp corners uh, I had on the car. Okay. And at the time, I thought, what an idiot, because I'm an idiot sometimes. Yeah, We, we all do silly things. Yeah, and But actually, a Formula One car is also an advertising media, and buying a race car, if you're not a professional, is necessarily an emotional decision. It's never a decision on cold-blooded lo- logic. And so Bill had his brain turned on and said, Willem, we've got to do something. So we got another, we've got a young student involved who now works in Formula One. He did a year's placement to do design work. And we involved an aesthetic designer. And we went around ten, 10 loops. And so with every loop, we all made, gave our input. When we'd, done, when we'd given our input, um, we, we, we would then do another loop. And it took like two weeks. Then the student put that idea, that those thoughts and those designs that we came up with, just sketches, put that into CAD, ran it in CFD. It was more efficient than what I'd done with just using my aerodynamic brain. It was wow. like a real eye-opening moment for me. Use the brains around you. So we all have our own knowledge bases, and they are different. Three, four, five, or a dozen people willing to compromise from one another with different knowledge bases, just sitting down and just discussing every step of the way how things are going. And I've used that since in Formula One to try and improve the design process. So you just take, and you want different, you don't want everyone to have gone the same uni studying the same course. You want different inputs. Yeah. Um, so then I did some further work and we did did a staged rollout of the car. Stage one, cigar car, no body, no proper body work, just the central cigar, um, the first person to buy it would have the right to name the the model of the car, which he did. Um, and then we had two stages of bodywork, the 
coolers and the side pods and the floor and the, and the, and the wings. And then a later stage was adding our front wake control boards, which made a big step. So that's basically how the car came about. I felt I had this guy a really big favour. I may have gone a bit overboard. <laughs> With the design pro- but also in the process, imagine you are running a large department of people designing a Formula One car. And I was running the aerodynamics department. The aerodynamics departments got to sizes of about 200 people. What year was this? Sorry. What year was this? 200 people would have been late teens, early 20s. Now the departments are being shrunk a little bit because of the budget cap. Um, I ran a department of about 100 people, but you're not doing any aerodynamics when you're running 100 people. You've got good people with the right degrees, with the right knowledge, doing the, the work. You maybe give them some guidance from time to time, which so, for example, one of the things that I really appreciated about Ross Braun was I don't think he was the best technical brain in the group that he was managing, but he had the best way of extracting what he needed from everyone who had the specialist knowledge, sitting down and agreeing a direction and then making sure the whole team followed that one direction. Yeah. Um, so that's what I tried to do in my teams. Then I'm not doing any aerodynamics. Then this, for me, was an opportunity to finally, again, in detail, play with aerodynamics as such. And I just re-fell in love with it. <laughs> and I guess with hill climb, because of some of the freedom around the rules, it kind of like opens up a little bit more creativity. Is that is that right? It, it does. It, it allows you... So, for example... We never realized until 2009, when the Formula One rules changed, how well you could use flow rotation to completely change the way you manage the aerodynamics around a car. And then in 2009, rules came in that gave you a lifting section in the middle, downforce created outboard, um, and we started thinking, do we want a Y250 Vortex? So the central section was 500 mil wide, so 250 from centre. And if you have um, you have a complete change of flow direction, one section to another, you will get some flow rotation. And we were trying to figure out, do we want to minimise it or do we want to use it? Quite quickly, all teams work out, you want to use it. You want it, you want it to be strong. And it's a trick that's used to get more air under the front of the car. Could you just brief very clearly explain the the flow rotation what that is to the to the viewers just in case they're then unaware yep <laughs> uh, quite 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 correct so air going over the center part of the front wing will be washed downwards then you have something that'll generate downfall so you're trying to take air and wash it upwards um, and at the junction the, the 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 air sort of naturally starts to rotate air coming along let's say that's going to go above the front wing flaps that would not that would send it up they they can't go through so they have to go up or they have to go around any that go around start to create this flow rotation and that vortex can be used to take air further out that might say go above the whole assembly you rotate that very gently inwards downwards and the end end up sending it under the car so we learned a lot from that and then, but the rules in hill climbing are relatively free. So you have that sort of freedom, but you also have far more freedom dimensionally and where you can put things. So, for example, the aerodynamics of this hill climb car already before we started work were, was creating a similar amount of downforce, a little bit less than Formula One, but much more efficient than Formula One. And we can relatively easily, because of different rules, create something that despite being a much lighter car has more downforce than a formula one car would have at the same speed it's quite surprising that you managed to do it more efficiently i kind of imagined where you've got in formula one you have these big boxes drawn out by the rules of like you can't put bodywork here or it has to be this shape or, or whatever I, I kind of presumed those cars would be incredibly efficient because they're so limited on where they can put bodywork where where those rules aren't there in hill climb i would have thought you would uh have loads of power to push loads of drag um how were you able to make that more efficient well we were forced to in a way because 
when this car was designed, it was going to run a, a motorbike engine. So you just didn't have the power to drive a lot of drag. So partly you use slightly smaller wheels and tyres. You can imagine, let's, you, you take all the gubbins off a Formula 1 car, you, you're left with your chassis. You, you've got to put a driver somewhere and you're left with your massive wheels and tyres. And, and that's never going to be low drag. Yeah. So you, you do a little bit of work there. But also, before Formula One introduced ground effect again, now, the flat floors with diffusers that we had before the, the current generations of Formula One cars, so we had a, a big change of regulation that came in for 2022, originally planned for 21, but then COVID happened. Um, and... That was to bring back full ground effect where the underside of the car looks nominally like the upper surface of an aircraft wing, but it's operating close to the ground. Uh, I was already using that sort of uh, idea and technology on the hill climb car because we could, and that is more efficient. And why is it more efficient? Well, if you just take, say, a wing element a nice curved wing element up in free stream. Um, you are move, you're going to move the air above and below it um, a lot to a good distance. And as you bring the, the wing, if you bring the wing close to the ground, you are the, the lower surface is restricted. And you speed the air up going underneath the, the wing or ground effect sight pod. You speed it up um, and can create the downfall. So that speed up, gives a reduction in pressure underneath complicated aerodynamic regulations but or laws of physics um, but um, creates a speed up and you generate the same power with less wing angle if you get closer and closer to the ground and so there are two types of drag that you get on on uh, two main types of drag you get on a wing element let's say or, or a ground effect side part of car um, one is skin friction drag well that's related to local velocity near the surface. But up in the air, close to the ground, doesn't make a huge difference. Um, if, on the other hand, you uh, the other type of drag is, we call it pressure drag. And so if you can generate your force with an element that is effectively flatter, then because it's flatter, uh, you have less pressure drag. So you just imagine... A surface at 45 degrees and you 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 have a difference in pressure upper surface to lower surface then that's going to pull at the pressure forces are going to pull at the angle of that surface so that is going to be at 45 degrees so you're going to generate pretty much the same drag as downforce but if you can do that with something that's flat all the pressure forces are giving you downforce but almost no drag only skin friction is giving you drag so you get much more aerodynamic efficiency like high downforce to drag ratio yes yeah understood understood the concept that gives you the the benefit hmm okay that makes that makes a lot of sense a formula one car today they're pretty efficient they're pretty good um but we can definitely beat that now for this event i, I would i will say we'll probably end up by the time we fine tune it we'll probably end up with something that is less efficient than we could be just to give it more power because the early stages, you can imagine, you start with a cigar with wheels, but then you start to add bodywork. You you can reduce the drag of your wheels and, 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 for example, put that onto downforce generating devices. That can be a great benefit. Um, but eventually, when you get to a certain level, then the downforce you add will become, we call it dirtier. It will become more expensive in terms of drag. After the design process, wh where did you end up with, with that car? Like so... As it was for hill climbing with the small engine, it would have had, say, two-thirds of the downforce of a Formula One car, but about half the drag. That's where it was. And about half the weight as well. Uh, less than half the weight. Yeah. And how much power did you... What engine was... Uh, only 240 horsepower. And that was like a Hayabusa type... Exactly. Okay. Hayabusa engine. Okay. What does that weigh? Um, the engine itself? Yeah. I'm not sure. 55 kilos. Not not huge, yeah. and and so there is an electric version of that car. Aside from our project, there is an electric version of that car. weighs about the same, has a bit more horsepower. And I would say we don't need massive horsepower. I, I think, depending upon what drag level we decide to tune the car to, 
I think 300 would be enough, but you always want to have a bit of spare, so I'd say you want 400 horsepower or maybe even 400 kilowatts if you want to go mad. And in terms of the cars it's competing against in hill climb, what do they look like? Are there any that are there with 700 brake? Or Yes. So the top class cars, so this car does compete in, so the, there is uh, there are various class categories, and then there is an unlimited category as well, and the top 12, they call it in the UK, the top 12 will compete for um, an overall championship, and it doesn't matter whether you are a sports car, a small open wheel, a larger, it doesn't matter. But the fastest cars today weigh quite a bit more than the Wraith. They weigh, say, 430 kilos. You compare that to a Formula One car weighing... Now, a Formula One car includes the weight of the driver at nearly 800, just under a couple of kilos under 800 kilos. By the time you put some fuel in, it's going to be eight hundred over 800 kilos. So you've got to allow 830 kilos for a running Formula One car, let's say, average. Um, the, the weight of a hill climb car is quoted without driver. So let's say you take an 80 kilo driver and you add it to, say, a 430 kilo car. You got 510 kilos. You're still a heck of a lot lighter than a Formula One car. And the, the cars will have different powertrains. But for example, one of the one of the engines that are used is a sports a, a V8 Judd sports car engine. And they can be tuned to what you want. You will want that to be a drivable engine. Um, so when I was competing, say, let's say 2005, I had a Judd X Formula One V8 stroked out to four litres. It only had maybe 650 horsepower, but incredibly controllable and drivable, which is really important for hill climbing and would also for us be extraordinarily important. The driver has to have precise control. And these things, these, so these things would be, could be 850 horsepower. Okay. I suppose if you had a 1,200 horsepower car where it's all right up at the top end and you've got nothing down low, unless, unless you're flat, you're not getting all of that. I made a really bad mistake and sold the great Judd engine I had in the, in the, in the car and put uh, a Cosworth XD, XD twin-turbo version specially tuned and it had at least 850 horsepower but at 7,000 RPM, it had maybe 180. And at 7,500 RPM, it had maybe 700. It was just, we couldn't, I couldn't drive it. You just get any gear, you, you, it come on, come on boost and you'd be more, give me more, give me more. And then, and then it would just be wheel spin and sideways and undrivable. I, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. Right. So we decided that this was the right car. Um, we came to you with the problem. Uh, obviously, you'd, you'd thought about it and, and done some work on, on previous stuff before. But what what did the the initial development look like? Where did you start? Where did you even begin? Because obviously, this is so different to a kind of uh, a hill climb or a circuit problem. Um, what were the considerations that you had to think about? So the first thing, I, I set myself up. Uh, um, I, I took the data from the hill climb car and I set myself up some additional calculations. Um, the speed with which we would reach double the downforce of the, the weight of the car. And if we made a change, so let's say um, as we went through the development process, I would add wings. I would allow for the additional mass of extra wings so that my calculation was always taking into account I would be tracking the way the weight would go. So you put a load of extra physical parts on, they're going to weigh something. I just made an allowance. Rough. Um, so that I always had in mind, and, and one of the things that is a problem for all cars that generate downforce, and if I give you the example of GT cars, most racing GT cars that race on circuits today, if you took the front ride height and went to the absolute maximum front ride height, combined with the lowest you could get on the rear just up until the point where the diffuser strikes on the GT car, GTE, say, car, would touch the ground, you go to that, almost everyone would switch from generating significant downforce to generating lift. If you add a crosswind, you put some yaw in, that would go to even more lift. So cars have a problem with ride height. And that's why I created, when I when I do my development in any case, I, I look at a number of different car attitudes. Most people will look at half car if they're doing their work in computational fluid dynamics, CFD. 
then they might look at a half-car symmetry case straight line because that takes half the calculation capacity. I don't do that. I've, I've not done that for many, many years because I want to know what happens more in corners. And but most so and the rate was the same as all cars, Formula One cars, all cars, you raise the ride height and you lose some of the benefits of ground effect. And in particular, most cars will have a rear wing that stays out of ground effect all the time. A floor that has a certain ground effect, effect performance influenced by the rear wing and then a front wing that is in ground effect. So as you change the height of the car, you tend to lose front downforce. Well, the front's the first thing that sees the air. If you're upside down and you and then already you've got not your normal amount of downforce pushing the car towards the surface, let's say, yeah, already. And then, then so then the mass is trying to pull you away. If you keep losing downforce, there's your beginning of the... So I wanted to make sure I had a good safety. So I started looking at that. And the ride height, sorry, just to interrupt, the ride height's changing fairly significantly from being... Uh, just driving along the, the, the track of the ground to being inverted. If you were to compete with, um, do this event with double the downforce, double the weight of the car in downforce, then in your upside down condition, you'd be running at static ride heights on the ground. So when you're stationary on the ground, you measure the ride height, you're likely to be at those ride heights. There's going to be no compression relative to what no it would be. No suspension compression yeah. relative to, yeah. Yes. Um, so we'll, of course, be running more, as you know. And because I want the safety margin. And um, so then I started looking at, at first, just how can I quickly, with designs that we've got in our heads, the things that we've got, molds that we've got lying around, how can we quickly increase the downforce? So that was my first phase, and we very quickly got to a significant increase in downforce to the point where we'd gone past Formula One in terms of downforce, still more efficient. Then we started to look at a few problems that we had. Just before you jump into that, Willem, can you just share with us, um, if you remember the figures off the top of your head, like what the starting speed was to double the to double the the, the downforce, um, and then where you ended up at that first phase? So at first it would have been a hundred mile an hour to double the downforce, and we've got it down well below eighty miles an hour. Well, yeah, to double the weight of the car, double the weight of the car. So. That's if you ask Formula One people, they're going to say, "Okay, we can equal the weight of the car at let's say I can't remember that, but let's say 150 kilometers an hour, we could equal the mass of the car." But you need to double it. Then you're talking maybe 130 miles per hour. Well, we we can do the same thing at 80. Yeah, yeah. Um, because the car's so much lighter, and yeah, and there are still fine tuning we can do if we if we feel that the safety margins are not great enough when we get to that. We're close, but yeah, we can do a little bit more, I'm sure. From what I understand, the car as it was could have done... If you could get it going on a road and magically flip the road upside down, that's quite a simple scenario. It would have been absolutely fine. What what you've then spent all of the time playing with is trying to get it up around transitioning to 90 and then to 180 degrees, right? So, for example... um, going say at 45 degrees well the car would do that anyway even even you, you could just trundle if you if you go to the banking at there's still a bit of old banking at monza it's like i don't know 50 degrees or something it's quite special because you need good shoes to walk up and okay it's it's pop holy now it's not in good condition anymore but but a car uh, 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 a car with good tires will have a friction the tires will have a, a high friction coefficient more than one which means you can even 45 degrees plus 50 degrees, you would be able to just... And if you look at MotoGP, they're leaning the bikes over on good circuits. They're leaning the bikes over at 60 degrees. That means they've got a calculation, vehicle dynamics. that they have a, The tyres have a friction coefficient of two. They don't need the downforce. The downforce on a MotoGP bike will push it to slide. Yeah, the downforce helps them to not wheelie, but downforce... In, in the direction of the angle of the motorbike will actually not help you. Yeah. It doesn't really help. So you could go to 60 degrees, no problem at all. 90 degrees, therefore, would actually be quite easy, except you start getting a peeling moment, a roll moment. And then for, for me, there are, there are a number of different things that we can, we can look at. So one of the first things is if you want to go, if you go for a, an infinite tunnel, then you are flying. For a start, you've got to get your car 
all that way up, let's say 100 meter diameter, you've got to get your car up 100 meters. That takes time and distance to do because you're not going to just go, boop, boop. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not going to work. Then, so, and then if you go, as you reduce the diameter, that curvature, so is it worth having a little bit of a look at a, at a model? Yes, let's do it. Plum to grab it. Willem brought a model today with uh this is a car you drove right the no, no the car i designed yeah sorry so this is an, an old ferrari an old, an old ferrari model so and i have a tunnel 98 yeah yes uh, thank you <laughs> <laughs> how do you do that <laughs> i know the cars of those periods so you have your tunnel and let, so let's say normally you have your car and it is on a flat road and you have a certain clearance then if you if you are in a tunnel then you increase the clearance underneath so you spend all your energy doing a load of aerodynamic work to optimize the performance of something that runs on a flat ground and then you give it something that's far from flat and with the curvature that we've finished up with at optimized to that would mean uh, an effective increase in ride out of 50 millimeters if you just average the difference over the over the entire area that's the one first thing so for those that are listening i suppose we're talking about the difference between running a car on a flat road where the ride height is is static as you look across the width of the car and now we're talking about the fact that if you're going to put it inside a tunnel the center section has a much greater uh, gra- uh distance to the ground than at the edges of the wheels and the sorry, well, the, the solution to that problem is to have a bigger tunnel, right? The bigger you make the tunnel, the the the, the closer it is. Imagine you're a hundred meters in the air and driving along, nice as you like, and you hit a bump, as you pointed out in your video, and you and that's a really massive, sh- and you don't want to add that extra kinetic energy that you've got by yeah, you don't want to convert that potential energy you've got by being up there into kinetic energy. Talk about F1 cars having airplane crashes. That is really actually an airplane crash, yeah. And you, and and that's why the best compromise is to go for something that's just that little bit smaller, um, not even to mention the cost of creating something like that. And then, if you look at what happens to the contact patches when you've got, when you're in a tunnel, you're operating on just the outer edges of your tires. So it's not, and even with say a twenty meter diameter tunnel, you would not be able to adjust the cambers of a Formula One car to be able to put those tires into correct contact with the tunnel. You need 45 degrees of camber or something like... Well, not that much, but... (laughs) (laughs) On its way. (laughs) So we're looking at quite significant camber angles. So there's the next problem. And then you can just... You just imagine when you're at, let's say, that sort of angle with your car. So what would that be? Yeah, so like 135 degrees, something like that. Most of the way up. Yeah, you're a fair way up. You've got downforce pushing you up, but you've also got a big peeling moment. You've got much more force on these lower wheels. Gravity's pull, pulling pulling this way, yeah? So gravity's acting on the central gravity of the car, and then you've got a contact here and here, and then so the important contact is that outer edge, and gravity's trying to do that to your car, so that's really important. So the top side wheels are being pulled downwards, yeah, falling away from the tunnel. So the, the vehicle's three-quarters of the way through getting to inverted and the the wheels that are going to get invert going to kind of go to the top of the tunnel first they're peeling away from them they're wanting to peel away yeah so you need a lot of downforce to make sure they stay stuck but the really big challenge is getting there because of the angle you have to go relative to the tunnel so the that's your... the really big the your angle precisely okay. just to simplify that you have to turn to go up the tunnel up the side of the tunnel onto the roof you could create a bespoke single track so that you profile a track to go precisely where you want. But you still have to have twist between the front axle and the rear. So you could solve the curvature problem by just creating a fixed trajectory. But imagine something goes wrong and you cannot follow that trajectory anymore. Then you're into deep trouble. I suppose it's a bit like if you put a jack on one wheel of your car, the whole thing sits up on just two corner weights across the car and you've got two wheels floating there. 
in the air and you've got to deal with that whilst carrying all of that downforce and all of that speed. Nearly always with most cars there will be more mass and more downforce acting on the rear axle than the front axle. So if I were to take my car in an exaggerated way and align the rear axle, then what do you see at the front? Yeah, so William's showing me uh, a model of the tunnel with the car turning up and across the tunnel. The front left tyre is a significant distance away coming off of the tunnel because it's turning across this curvature. So imagine, just put yourself in Scott's perspective, being sat in that car. I know you can't see the bottom of the wheel, but imagine you're, you're driving a car and you see your front wheel is a couple of feet, maybe, a foot off the ground. In fact, I've just realised I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> hey, I'll do it. <laughs> Willem, what was the, um, do you remember what the calculation was uh, for how, how far that, Im- Im- imagine there's no droop. The more slowly, so if you have an infinite, an infinite uh, section of tunnel, yeah, then the more slowly you do your climb, the 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 smaller. But in order to optimise this event, it would be about 100 millimetres. So you've already got 50 millimetres added by the curvature of the tunnel, and then you add a, another 100 millimetres under one wheel, so you add another 50 millimetres of average right height to the front part, and that is reducing as you get back to the rear. Sure, sure, okay. And this is one thing, like, I saw a lot of comments after we released the, the first project inversion video where people hadn't thought through these these details, and this is the biggest problem, right? This is the most, most difficult part to solve. That That... We still have some details to work out. So I am not a suspension expert, so I'm not going to pretend that I know about suspension, but I know enough to know that that's that's the biggest mechanical problem you have to solve with the car. You have to work out how to keep your contact pressures, front and rear, even enough, because you've already got this contact pressure difference caused by the the roll moment that the the gravity is causing. Um, But you also need to work out how you don't have roll stiffness in such a way that it's basically going to lift a front wheel right off the ground. If you're going to do anything, you may lift a rear wheel. And then if you've got a conventional differential or one you can't lock, that could be a problem as well. (laughs) I get three quarters of the way and then I go wheel spin on one rear wheel and then I fall down. So these are all really... So lots of formula one teams my first look at this was well over 20 years ago lots of formula one teams have looked at it to do as a serious stunt because we've talked about it forever and nobody's done it but the reason nobody's done it is there are so many of these real problems to solve that it's most formula one teams have just backed away and said oh this is not this is not possible for us yeah they didn't have a will in that so <laughs> oh, and maybe they did actually. <laughs> they did want to retain something that really was, you could pretend was, would look in an image as a Formula One car. The Canva, no. Yes. And then for um, for for us as well, looking in the past, we tried to imagine a way you could make the circuit. So going to a great big real tunnel before it's used, let's say, for pumping water or something, going to a great big real tunnel, who's going to believe it? That was where you came from as well. Who's going to believe that, that it's happening? But you, And you're not just rotating a camera and, and fudging stuff together. You know, who's going to believe it? You need people to actually see it with their eyes. And therefore, you have to create something specially as the course, the circuit, the, the track you're going to use. And that means... Anything that uses distance eats money. Yeah, distance and size. We've we've discovered that. So with with that kind of healing point being the, the difficulty and some of the ride height issues, what have been the aerodynamic solutions to those that you've had to that you had to come across? Whether it's the floor, uh, the overwing aero, and and so on. So the aerodynamic solutions involve. Um, so it's relatively easy to allow for the curvature of the tunnel in in terms of when you have no your angle that's relatively easy so that you you mean that's the 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 gap between the the floor and the and the ground really but you, well well put <laughs> so i was going to say you've got no floor no front wing no 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 so you change the profile of the floor so for a ground effect floor to work one of the mistakes that was made if maybe a mistake is the wrong word but one of the 
things that were overlooked when the rules were written for 2022 was they allowed a relatively small gap and forced the teams to have the choke point on the on the ground effect floor relatively close to the ground if the car was at almost zero ride height. They did not anticipate that the teams would look at it and actually put the car at effectively zero ride height. They would scrape the ground almost, yeah. Um, they didn't expect that. With the team, with the cars before running a lot of rake, they really didn't expect that. And the change for 2023, or one of the minor changes for 2023, was to just increase that gap a little bit. So you need a gap. Because imagine if I put a, a tunnel radius floor on the underside at its at its um, lowest point, its point closest to the ground, then you wouldn't be able to run, run on a straight line. You have to be able to run in a straight line as well on flat ground to get to your tunnel. Yeah. Um, but that we can do. And then I've started to use more devices that are not in ground effect. So they're not so much influenced by proximity to the ground, which is where you lose a little bit of efficiency, but you can still gain power that way. Okay. Uh, aerodynamic power. Yes. So that's bigger wings, more wings, more elements. <laughs> do we call it dirty downforce? Add, adding more. And then, but of course... The, 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 another calculation that, of course, we, we, we do, as we did as we were going through these steps recently, is you, you look at uh, the aerodynamic drag you've got, the top speed you might want to reach, and you look at your acceleration profile to get there, given that drag, and you will then need more power. And quite quickly, you'll have more grip to be able to use that power, except if you start on a flat and you've cambered your tyres, and the camber angles are fairly extreme, you've cambered your tyres so that they're optimized for the tunnel. It's not till you get to the tunnel, you'll actually have most grip. And so when you're at, say, 45 degrees, like this, that's where you're going to get your peak acceleration. And also when you'll be able to get the biggest yaw angle, and then the yaw angle will reduce as you go up. So tell us about the camber. Why do you need to run so much camber? Okay. It's because of the way tires work. So a, a rubber tire, any type of rubber tire, will um, have a certain, once it's up in operating conditions, will have a certain ratio between how much load you push locally and how much how much force you can exert with that tire. We call that a coefficient, a friction coefficient. And the friction coefficient of an operating tire will be fairly high. But it, as you, one of the things, when I first started doing simulations of a race car around a track, so I wrote in the 1980s for Formula One, one of the very first lap time simulation codes that we used in Formula One for, for the Benetton team. And when I started to calculate how fast my aero would make the car around corners and then correlated that with what was happening in reality with no knowledge of tyres, and I, I realized that actually, as I had a downforce, the gains made on the car weren't as big as I thought. And so the you know it's why, for example, a high performance car will tend to have a wider tire, more contact area. And the additional contact area means that you have more grip. So skinny then and it all turns on its head if you get on ice. Goes backwards. But that's another we're not gonna do this in on No, that that that's project inversion too. <laughs> 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 now we're going to do it on ice. Project inversion on ice. <laughs> like the Lion no, King. Sounds like a dreadful idea. We we get a lot of comments whenever we talk about tires, and you go, you you say, oh, if you expand the area, then you lower the the neutral for and explaining to people that wider tires do grip better than narrower tires. It's because so, so the the effectively as you add load to the tire the tyre sort of gets harder and harder and harder. You can't make the rubber disappear, and it just sort of goes... It's like you think of it as the tyre just getting harder and harder. And the harder you push down, the harder the tyre gets, effectively. And and so maybe we need a tyre expert to tell us what is the mechanism, um, but there is a mechanism like that. So tyre tire grip is created by um, moulding to the shape, is one thing, and then once you've moulded to the shape, you can't really do anymore, and then... Adhesion like an adhesive tape is another type of grip you get from a tire. And that adhesive tape part doesn't work that well if you get the, the vertical load being rock, rock uh, being really, really, really high. And because of that, you want your tires to be in contact. And also because of that, performance cars have those wide tires. Yeah. Except if it's a rally car on ice and then studs. And, and so that's 
that's nice and easy when you have a car running along a flat piece of track. How do you do that when you've got a curvature of this eight, seven and a half metres or whatever? You have to optimise for your worst condition and your worst condition is going to be your 145 degrees and then you want the maximum contact area on the tyres then. And that's why you redesign the car to have a much higher camber angle that suits the curvature of the tunnel you've chosen. So in terms of the, the, the design process, just to go back to that, you, you kind of run all of these models like what has that what has that evolution looked like and how many how many uh runs have you done in cfd as you know i love this project so i did some runs myself first where i paid <laughs> and then he went by the way <laughs> we did i think we did 38 configurations but i did five attitudes for every configuration and at each point thought think about the results look at the next phase what do you want to achieve? A configuration is a different wing or a different, different ride car height design. Or? No, different car design. Okay, um, different car. And so, uh, okay, and then for for each car design, I would do at least five car attitudes, ride heights. Okay. And so I I typically so if I'm doing development, I'll do five would be for me. And you do some like a flat ride height, uh, a nose up, a nose down, and um, two runs at quite an extreme yaw angle. And which of all of those, which um, which produces the, the least downforce? Um, highest ride height with a high yaw angle. Okay, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. Makes sense. Yeah. And the, the one that is the best is the lowest ride height with a lower... I don't do zero yaw, but I do two degrees. Because in the, like this is for any development I do. Because in the real world, maybe you're not sliding, but there's wind. Yeah. Yeah, there is some square on. Yeah, okay. So cool. This is... Cool. You you've thrown so many problems, and I, you know naturally you're gonna you're gonna try and think through. Oh yeah, how would you, how would you try and solve that? And I've got nothing. So how how are you getting to the point where this is this is feasible? Aerodynamically, I'm completely confident that this is feasible. But then aeros have been confident through all the phases of the, this Formula One research into this type of project. We're, with this car and with the research we've done here, we're at a point where we've got more downforce than I've ever seen before for, with any of the previous iterations. So just in terms of aero, I'm confident. And I've also got a car that is far less sensitive to the ride heights that, than you would have with, let's say, a more conventional formula car. So it may not look completely conventional, but it has to perform. There is still some work to do on the details of the suspension to reduce that, to control the roll of the car, but reduce the roll stiffness of the front enough that you can make sure the front wheels stay in contact with the ground because they really have to. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an interesting problem. The final design, by the way, looks like a Formula One car I might have drawn when I was like nine years old. She's got wings coming out of it. <laughs> Seven elements on the rear wing. It's amazing. It's more 2008 than 2009 F1, yeah. I was looking at some of the photos, and that was the biggest one, was the rear on. And you can see you can see five central planes and then two pieces tacked on the edge of the wing, in case that wasn't enough. Well, the two pieces... So the two pieces on the outside edge of the, of the, of the conventional end plate, let's say, they see air that is being drawn down behind the rear wheels. So you've got these massive rear wheels and air sort of naturally will just flow over them. And you put them in the area above the wake of the wheels, but in an area where the flow is going downwards and with a relatively low angle of attack on the on what looks like a low angle of attack on the wing, you're turning the air a lot because because otherwise it would just be filling the void behind the car. So they have a fair bit of drag, but they, but they have a lot of performance and the efficiency of them is much better than you might think. And so I've got one more question about the front wing. You mentioned, uh, obviously, a typical front wing on an F1 car runs with a lot of ground effect. Uh, and so you're having to use it outside of ground effect, presuming there's almost none, I, I presume, from that. And so I've seen lots of time attack cars, whether it's at Pikes Peak or in the UK, like Nissan GTRs and things, where basically you have something that looks like a rear wing on the bonnet of the car that's up outside of ground effect and is producing downforce. How are you producing so much downforce on the front wing of the car if it's nowhere near the ground? It's still near enough the ground that you get some ground effect. Um, but I do have additional elements up above. I don't want to put a rear wing in front of Scott's eyes when he's driving the car because I think he might want to see where he's going. I'd be appreciated. Thank you. <laughs> 
we 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 did put some odd things. We had some front wing towers on the on the uh, on the BMW Sauber. One race they let us race because it was legal. They only let us race one, and they they produced no downforce. They were vertical towers, outwashing each one, and they created tip vortices that gave the rear wing more downforce. And they actually were all, more, all about. And then that was two thousand seven. Then in two thousand and eight, we looked at the rules and had there was a much smaller window we could put so the driver could see over the top and not have to look through. And we gave these these towers, the twin towers that we put on the BMW 2007, gave them to uh, Jacques Villeneuve to test. And Jacques Villeneuve saw the car with these things on. And sort of looks before he gets in the car. It's like, you know how I complain about the aerial vibrating in front of, and the pitot tube in front of my eyes, and you put those on the car? Then he drove it. And then um, we're going to take them off. So he, he did a baseline. Then we put on these parts on the nose cone and then we went back to baseline so we did baseline test item baseline and um and we put the baseline back on and he said what are you doing on the radio to his engineer oh we take them back off to put to do a back-to-back you don't need to they're good leave them on <laughs> so what you're saying is drivers appreciate seeing where they're going unless they're going faster yeah exactly <laughs> Well, they have a similar thing with the halo now, I suppose, but I suppose that's close enough that your eyes can sort of kind of look through it. The halo only ever is very carefully designed so that it only ever blocks the vision of one eye at a time. So your brain very quickly sees around it. You don't notice it anymore. That's incredible. It is. Um, and, and drivers, they had to do tests themselves. Every Almost every driver had to be in the car and drive it to believe it. But, but in the first year we had them, we proved, and it was our car, Monza. Um, end of straight, DRS didn't open, Marcus Ericsson. And he flipped it really badly. And, and if it hadn't have been for the halo, I, I mean, he might have been fine. But that made sure he was fine. And he was able to race the next day. Yeah. He was able to just get back on the car. I mean, just incredible. So in terms of the, the, the aero on the Project Inversion car, were, were there any other big things that you wanted to cover like big issues or big problems that you had to that you had to come across and, and actually if was was there anything that you tried in all of the cfd runs that that didn't do what you were expecting there's always to going to be a few things i tried to use the y250 vortex concept to get some more air under the car and i did it too crudely and it didn't work and so yeah there, there are always going to be things that you know one of the things i like to do when you're developing a new I, a new project, let's say, is you bring in some young blood who hasn't done it all before because they will try all the silly ideas you think won't work because you've already tried them, but in a different, on a different baseline, in a different context, and these kids will have good uh, educational backgrounds. They will have an understanding of the basics of airflow. So they will, will have some understanding that maybe I didn't have when I was first starting, yeah, when you tried all the... So, I, I like to throw in a few things that are maybe a bit off the wall and just see what, what works. But mostly I used existing knowledge to make, we didn't want to spend a huge amount of money on the development if we didn't need to. So mostly I was just using the knowledge I had to just make some step-by-step -step progress. Sure. When you get the numbers back um, from the from the aero runs, does it give you like how... I don't know what the right word is, like how peaky the arrow is. Like, it does. does it give you a kind and of... That's, it doesn't... If you do a single run, let's say you'll do your half-car symmetry, you have no idea how sensitive it is. And that is exactly why I do five different car attitudes, in order to make sure I'm not developing something that's peaky. So you can say, like, okay, it works perfectly in a straight line, or more or less a straight line, and then when you add your and add ride height to it, actually it only loses 5% of downforce. Exactly, that's what yeah, I think. Yeah, okay. Awesome. And unfortunately, it does lose more than that, so we have to start with a lot. But that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> what could happen that means a car does that? What happens if we have a monumental shunt? So in, in my cartoon brain, and as a driver being very optimistic, and you can correct me here, Willem, I'm just imagining that if the worst happens, it just peels away gently, and we just gradually float down to the ground, have a nice slow crash. Is that right? <laughs> Probably not. Um, it's one of the reasons why, uh, with it, together in discussions, we agreed on the seven and a half meter diameter pipe, radius pipe, 
Um, you don't want a massive distance to come to the ground because you will have a certain velocity. If you're going to leave the pipe, it's likely to be at the lower end of our range of velocities that we could run. And you don't want the energy you have because you're in the air converting to a lot of kinetic energy. So I, I did some motorbike jumps over cars when I was young. Um, Sounds perfectly safe. <laughs> <laughs> and you gain velocity, vertical velocity, very quickly if you have a lot of height. Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons. And so we'll be making sure that the car is engineered in such a way. So part of the reason the car will put on a little bit of weight is to add additional safety features. And you don't need them if the stunt goes well, if you know what I mean. But if it doesn't, you need to have your safety structures to make sure the thing protects the driver the best it can. Sure. And what are they like? What what sort of things are you considering? Uh, crushable structures, halo-like structures, that sort of thing. More strength in the roll hoop. Um, because if you start upside down, you've got a bigger chance that you're going to end up upside down if it's all, if all, if it's all symmetrical. Me, if I had any opportunity, uh, I'd be giving the car some sideways momentum to bring it back down. If you if if you know something's happening, you've lost power. I'd be heading back down. Yeah. Okay, adding some steering angle so that you're not landing top of the car down to the ground. As soon as the car has left, the front wheels have left the ground. You've got no steering left. Nothing. Uh, maybe there's some aerodynamic steering there, but it won't do much. I was going to say, this has just popped into my head, but if there was a way that you could put one one or one brake on the rear to turn it into the, the tunnel, so if the front wheels did come off, you could maybe turn it turn it down. I have no idea if that would work or not. It would. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you could have, a rear brake would absolutely be the sort of thing to play with. And then you could even have uh, a, a drag parachute pop out the back to just slow the thing down. Yeah. Lots of lots of ideas, but I mean, if we, you know, we're we're doing eighty, ninety miles an hour, I've crashed at quicker speeds than that before. <laughs> Fantastic, William. Thank you very much. A pleasure.